You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 59 of a Life in Ruins podcast. Reinvestigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. In this episode, we are chatting with Dr. Mason Brown, who is an assistant professor for Kathmandu University Department of Music and affiliate scholar for the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Asian Studies. Dr. Brown, how are you doing this evening and what was that instrument and what was the name of that song you were just playing for us? I'm doing pretty well, thank you, and uh, thanks for having me. That was an instrument called the Gramyan, which is the Tibetan lute. Cool. And uh, the song that I played and sang is a song from the place I did my field work for my PhD, a place called Mubri in Nepal. Excellent. And it's... Um, Kind of a, a Himalayan valley within Nepal, right on the Tibetan border, that is has you know very strong cultural linguistic ties to Tibet. That's awesome! That's really cool. Yeah, that, that song is in the in the Tibetan language, and it's a song about Nubri, Batushe, which is a, a genre from Tua, Upper Tibet, about Nubri. It just says, "At the top of the world, a happy valley arose, the happy valley of Nubri." the homeland of us youth. At the top is the ornamented heap mountain, the palace of the lords of the five families. At the bottom is the golden honey mountain, the golden bee mountain, uh, the practice place of Guru Rinpoche. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I was going to ask, uh, sorry to interject there. Uh, what what brought you to that side of the world? Like, were you always interested in it? Did, did you travel there or did you just really like that type of music? I'm a lifelong uh, practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism. And, you know, my father got into that when I was a little kid. So I've always been interested in, in Tibetan culture as well as uh, Japanese culture. And yeah, it, it was kind of a, a lifelong interest in it. And then when I decided to go to grad school much, much later in life than is normal. I thought that would be an interesting thing to study and learn about. Yeah, man. That's awesome. So we got first introduced to you, Mason. You reached out to us like a year ago and the onset of COVID, I think like June or May. I mean, you'd, you'd listen to the podcast and you live in Boulder. So we had met up on Pearl Street in one of the outside dining areas and got to talk because you were interested in archaeomusicology. 
And that's how we, I was introduced to you and your research in ethnomusicology mm-hmm. and some of the, uh, the topics that you study. So how did you become interested in the field of ethnomusicology? Well, I was interested in it all my life, although I didn't always know that that's what I was interested in. I was just interested in different types of traditional music from different cultures. You know, later I ended up reading learning what ethnomusicology was and reading about, you know, the history of musical instruments and, and things like that that really interested me. And I, it just uh, was a natural thing, I think, for me to want to get a degree in. Yeah. And what? how do you define ethnomusicology for those who aren't familiar with the subject? So it's basically the study of music within all its cultural contexts and in basically any way or framework you can think of. So it's very interdisciplinary. So in Europe, in the, in the 19th century, there, there was musicology, right? That was the study of Western art music, the literal, literate music of Europe. And at the same time, this uh, you know, colonization project is going on. Scholars are getting all these instruments from around the world and reco- later on recordings, but some scholars were interested in in that and studying the, those other musics from the cultural other and that mostly meant studying instruments that were brought back to museums right and and it was all in the service of their evolutionary theories right they wanted to show that how and why european music was superior to all these other musics and how it progressed from primitive to advanced that was the point of comparative comparison really Interesting. So it's kind of like, what is it? Historical particularism versus like, you know, cultural evolution, but with music. Right. Yeah. In in the United States, it was ethnomusicology's beginnings, although they were, they basically came out of this comparative musicology, but in the United States, it was particularly connected with folklore. And by the um, mid 20th century, the American ethnomusicologists, especially the American, eth- like um, I think, I think Yap Kuntz coined the word ethnomusicology, but um, people like Charles Seeger, who was the first president of the Society for Ethnomusicology, they adopted that in opposition to comparative musicology because they thought it was more you're not comparing things, you're just really studying one certain musical tradition. And that was uh, that's Bob Seeger's dad, right? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was bad so it started off kind of just like you take an instrument back to to europe and you're like oh let's try to play it and see what happens what kind of scales do they use okay that was a very big interest but it's also like i think as things change and as you guys study it today where music occurs and the context in which it occurs is also super important right it's not just instruments and things like that it's it's what it means to societies is that what like ethnomusicology like strives for is like context mixed in with music mixed in with instruments and to kind of understand societies pretty much and you know by the you know second half of the 20th century there are kind of two approaches kind of congealed one is more musicological that's exemplified by um mantle hood at UCLA, and then more anthropological, exemplified by Alan Merriam at Indiana, Bloomington. Indiana, one of the most influential 
ethnomusicology programs in the country is actually in the folklore. Yeah, I was I was telling my partner who goes to Indiana Bloomington that we're having someone that does I was you on. I was like, yeah, he does ethnomusicology. And she just started spitting facts at me about, oh, yeah, we have one of these. And I was like, how do you know about this? I've never heard about it before meeting Mason. And she's like, oh, our, our university is one of the top programs in the entire yeah, country. Like sure. a lot of my friends do it in anthropology. And I was like, what? This sounds so cool. But Alan Merriam actually called it the anthropology of music. And I think oh. that's basically what it is. But also, Mantle Hood was into what he called bimusicality, like learning another musical language, right? Actually learning how to play and perform the music that you study. Interesting. That's no longer, I don't think, is a split anymore. I think in places like CU, it's both. It's Jeez. pretty integrated that way. You know, you're a musicologist now, but your, your undergraduate was in religious studies yeah. and music at Naropa University. How do those two studies intersect? And then off of that, could you explain to the uh, university how Naropa in Boulder is a little different than standard public universities? Yeah. So uh, for me, since you, you can't get an ethnomusicology undergrad at Naropa, doing a double major in religious studies and music, almost the same especially if you're like me and, and the, one of the main things you study in terms of, of musicology is, is religious or liturgical music, or in my case, the religious content that's in secular folk songs. Secular not really being a good word for Tibetan folk songs. but So yeah, I, I found it, it prepared me very well to go into a PhD program in ethnomusicology. And uh, Naropa is a, a, a unique place because it was founded in the 1970s by a Tibetan Buddhist Lama, one of the first main Lamas who came to the West and really got popular. It was founded as, as not a Buddhist university, but very Buddhist influenced, a university that would include contemplative education and develop the idea of contemplative education and also bring in wisdom traditions from around the world. And it, it's a very small school. It's, it's just a small liberal arts school, really. It's got a reputation of being a little hippy-dippy, but um, <laughs> it's, got, it's, its psychology programs are very well respected. And in religious studies, I, I certainly found it uh, pretty rigorous. And it, it prepared me well for, for grad school, so... From someone who lived right near Boulder most of his life, it's not really a surprise that during the 70s, uh, this this would kind of emerge there if you know anything about Boulder and, and what people think of it and what people think occurs there. So what ultimately led you to, to continue further into to higher education to, to get a PhD? Well, like I said, I did this later. I did my undergrad late as well. I never went to college I went to Naropa for one summer in 1984, the year I graduated from high school. And it was then I realized, oh crap, I should have done better in high school because I would kind of like to go to this college. But I didn't have the wherewithal to pay for. I didn't even know how to go to college. You know, you know my parents are very working class. So I was just going to be an artist and a craftsman. So I didn't need to go to college. It was only later when I was in my around 40 that I broke my leg on a construction site. <laughs> I thought again about going to college. Gotcha. So then I did. I started when I was, I started my undergrad when I was 
43 and got my PhD at 52. Oh, wow. Okay. So a non-trad for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We get a lot of listeners that ask, you know, is it like too late to start kind of stuff or like how to, how to do it? So I'm, I'm glad to see like a legitimate success story come out of that. So we talked about, you kind of mentioned taking what they call a non-traditional route, which I don't think is a, a super good term because I think people learn and go to college in different kind of routes and everything like that. And I really actually enjoy seeing folks who take these different routes and seeing how they how they get there. Um, how was it actually going to school and getting uh, a PhD at c- kind of later in your life? I actually loved it. I think being older put me at a an, an advantage, really, in a lot of ways. You know, I was studying religious studies and music and ethnomusicology, and I had already been studying those things my whole life. And I was already, I was a mature musician. You know, I'd been a Buddhist priest, a Zen priest for 20 years. Wow. I just knew what I wanted to do. Like, I wasn't like my uh, younger colleagues trying to decide what my major would be. Yeah, that's cool. It was a good experience for me. I was unlucky to come out of it at this particular time when there's no academic jobs. Right. (laughs) That's just bad luck, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Whenever I meet like, you know, non-trad students or older students in in classes, they always are definitely the more hardworking. And I can tell they're just like, I mean, I've sat with them too, because some of them are friends, like, when you see, you know, some kids come in late or just miss classes all the time, like people like that are like, you're there to learn and get your degree. And all this, like you said, kids come in, they don't know what they want to do yet and kind of like waste time sometimes. So I, I think it is a good thing to like wait a bit. I, I wish I had um, and gotten some other experience before I went to college because I was dumb and a kid when I went in. And I really don't think I would have done as well if I yeah. went to college when I was 18. For sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that having life experience really gives you a different perspective on things. And it's, it's refreshing to hear that in classes, you know, cause we're, you know, at 18, 19, 20, we're given kind of a, a the, the college spiel and we're, we're trying to figure out who we are as, and it's, yeah, it's, it's super refreshing to, to have someone who's experienced life and, and seen things to, to really contribute to these discussions about what's going on. So I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. So I hope that answers some audience questions because we do get that one often. I would mm-hmm. recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm super grateful. I went to community college first before going to undergrad because if I, those grades at Nova, not so hot. Yeah. Not so hot. But once I figured out archaeology and, and went to a program and it did much better or else I would have probably just had less than a 3.0 in undergrad, probably never would have been able to go to grad school and be in marketing and making money. But. <laughs> well, I'd like to nerd out about music, so let's wrap this session up and let's let's head on to the next one. Welcome back to segment two of episode 59 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We're here with Dr. Mason Brown, and we're here to talk about some music. So I grew up playing the cello uh, in orchestra, and then I played piano mm-hmm. and, you know, dabble with guitar and stuff. So with that, I can kind of mess around with other string instruments, but it seems like you have definitely messed around with other string instruments. Yeah. <laughs> so can you tell us about that? Because it sounds awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, I started playing guitar when I was about five and took like classical guitar lessons and then took lessons all through elementary, junior high, high school. So by the time I was a teenager, I was like 
pretty good guitarist. But yeah, then I then I got into banjo, and I, I just kept adding other stringed instruments, a mandolin. Um, eventually, I got into viola da gamba. And that's like a big, like standing cello-like thing, right? No, just just like the violin family, which the cello is the base of the violin family. Viola da gamba or viols come in three sizes. Okay. Tenor, treble, and bass. And so they're used to play the kind of consort music in the Renaissance and Baroque before the violins took over and the, the gamba went out of style. Hmm. So yeah, the viola da gamba is a fretted instrument tuned in fourths. It's actually related to the guitar. It's not related to the violin. Huh. It's the viol family, not the violin family. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah, then I, you know, I got into other food, Japanese shamisen. Uh, now I'm working on the fiddle. I'm finally learning the fiddle, like for the past couple of years. Nice. Do you find that it's knowing one instrument or knowing other string instruments makes learning new instruments easier or is it helpful at all? I think it is. I mean, it you understand how they work, but it, it can also hold you up because you can you cannot realize that it's actually different. Like if I'm playing the guitar or I'm playing the oud, it's a totally different technique. Mm-hmm. So you can just play the oud like a guitar for quite a while, you know, and not really get good at playing the oud. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess like a ukulele is tuned different, but it's fretted like a guitar. So yeah. I always get confused when I'm doing that. And I mean, yeah. the tunings is, is a hurdle too, initially, because most people are, that play stringed instruments are used to learning just one tuning. Mm-hmm. But I, I play in six different tunings on the guitar. Oh, wow. Okay. All the time. So I can understand different tunings quite easily because I've practiced it a lot. Yeah. You know, all that all these different instruments that you've mentioned, especially the ones that are more, you know, non-Western, so out there in, in Asia, did you pick these up through your ethnomusicology or, or I guess with your background, was this also part of kind of your religious upbringing and being exposed to Tibetan culture at such an early age? It was a result of studying ethnomusicology that I learned to drum in um, because I never held one in my hands until I went to Nepal. And then I took lessons, you know, during, I did a Fulbright, I had a Fulbright haze to do my dissertation. I lived in Nepal for two and a half years and um, took lessons on the drum yin. And on the Nepali sarangi, you know, in, in grad school, I, I played a lot with the Japanese ensemble. Um, so I learned how to play the shamisen, the Japanese lute. So yeah, to go into ethnomusicology school definitely increased the number of stringed instruments I was playing. When I like obviously hear a shamisen, like it's a distinct sound. It's like obviously it's the the music you would think of when you hear Japan, like that you know cherry blossoms like falling from the sky, like kind of music. But the mu- the instrument makes that sound too. But there's obviously a level of like the language the like the instrument has, like you were talking about. So like in flamenco, you have the Phrygian minor or the Phrygian like, you know, scale. And then you have like our harmonic minor and you know, that's flamenco, but I have no idea for like, you know, Asian music, but there's obviously a distinct sound to it. So could the, could you speak to that? Cause that, I know nothing about that. Yeah. Well, what you're talking about, I think is um, the pentatonic scale. Okay. Because that's, if you think of shamisen, shamisen music, or various Chinese music, 
more that Tibetan music I played, you're pretty much dealing with a pentatonic scale, which is okay. a five note scale. So the u- usual and, and scales, uh, you, you asked me if there were different scales for, for different musics. And like you gave the example of flamenco, and yes, there are elaborate systems of scales like in Hindustani music or Arabic music that um, have a lot more than just the scales, right? They have the conventions of how to play those scales, what time of day you can play them, how you structure an improvisation in the scale. So, but there are then a lot of commonalities. So basically it comes from physics, right? That we have octaves. So, um, right, if you split the hertz of a frequency in half, it's... uh, or is it you double it? I can't remember. You double it, right? That's a D, and that's a D. That's an octave. So you can divide that in different ways. In in Western music, we tend to divide it into 12 equals half steps. Right. Right. So I'm not very good at playing a chromatic scale on this thing, but... Like that, mm-hmm. half step, half step, half step. But it's very common to divide that into seven unequal steps, whole steps and half steps, and that's called a diatonic scale, which is what where we have our major scale. Right? And so you notice in the major scale, there's a whole step, whole step, half step, whole step, whole step, whole step. And so there's two places where there are half steps, right? Yeah. If you skip over those and you go straight to the upper one, that's five. Oh, that's a pentatonic okay. scale. Yeah. There's, so that's all. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds major if you start it here. Sounds minor if you start it here. Right? And it has modes just like the diatonic scale. But uh, that pentatonic scale is really the most widely dispersed around the world, right? which is evidence that it's probably the oldest or one of the oldest scales because it's everywhere. That's so neat. Yeah, you can. And I, I feel like you can just doing that scale, you can hear or relate that to Japanese music or... Chinese music, you can almost hear. It's a stereotypical. It's, and it's the black keys on the piano, right? You can see this on the piano keyboard. If you just play the black keys, that's a pentatonic scale. That just blew my mind. I never realized it was all just pentatonics on that instrument because it's such a distinct sound. Yeah. That's really cool. And then you can get into like, like the, actually the Tibetan tune I just played is, is hexatonic. It has six (laughs) notes. So it, it sometimes plays one of those half steps, okay. which you could either consider hexatonic or you could consider it a passing tone in a pentatonic scale, like an extra tone in, this, in a pentatonic scale. Could you play a hexatonic for us? Well, it would the audience? be like one of those uh, half steps you would play. So instead of playing... Okay. Gotcha. So there's okay. only one big leap left in the scale. 
Okay. And yeah, you can kind of hear that being like, you know, Wild West music too, in like a sense too. Yeah, it is all over the world. That's I mean, neat. it's it's very stereotypical in that kind of Japanese folk music, but also in Appalachian folk music. And lots of all folk music really has pentatonic scales with probably some exceptions that I can't, I don't know about. Yeah. <laughs> That's an exaggeration, but it really is like all over. So you mentioned that the pentatonic scale is most likely, just because it's so widespread, it's most likely the oldest. Where do we find, and this can be, if this is like completely off topic, guys, we can change this question. Where do we find the first evidence for music in the archaeological record and and, and kind of our human story? Well, I mean, the oldest instrument, I believe, is a bone flute from Europe that's forty to 60,000 years old. And I'm not sure if that one plays a pentatonic scale. I think it might be more restricted than that. But there are uh, there are certainly like lots and lots of flutes found throughout prehistory that have pentatonic scales. And there are also lithophones that have those scales. Uh, or lithophones are stones that make a sound, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think the oldest instrument I've ever been able to see is that mammoth bone drum set out of Ukraine. Oh. I'm not, I think I that's that. like... 15 or 16,000 years. And it's like covered in ochre too. Uh, like it's really weird, but they, they say it's a drum set and that's, that's pretty metal. If you're playing drums on mammoth, mammoth ivory, mammoth bones, yeah, not well, ivory. basically just stone xylophones. You know what I mean? Yeah. There are paleolithic sites in Europe where there are uh, lithophones that are just stalactites and stalagmites that have been broken off at certain lengths to create different pitches. Ah, or the okay. fins, just the fins of the, of the stalactites have been broken off to, to create different pitches. And those are uh, tend to be in big chambers of caves with lots of paintings and places that a crowd of people could fit in. Like they're not in places that nobody can fit in, right? Yeah. So tends to look like you know ceremonial use yeah to be in there right under those paintings so they're like big chimes or whatever they exactly. they call them and you strike That's... it with a mallet or either made of stone or wood and there are those lithophones that are stationary uh, and then there are also ones that are smaller that you could have a set of stones that create some cluster of pitches not necessarily a scale but uh which is basically like a xylophone. That leads to my, my next question. And I know there's like an old set of lithophones in Africa that's like considered some of the oldest. I forget where it is, but I know that's like, you know, oldest known, like for sure that was a lithophone, but couldn't have lithophones have been used like for much of like in the Paleolithic, just we wouldn't see them because a very sound is like percussion in a sense. Well, absolutely. And like, um, I was talking to you before we went on about this, uh, your sister podcast, The Archaeology Show. I think it's episode 47 that they have Marilyn Martirano. Yeah. She just discovered accidentally that um, some lithics in her collection made musical sounds. Huh. And then she reevaluated and she realized they actually were lithophones and set her off looking at other collections, right, to see what other artifacts might not have been identified because nobody's ever been thinking about that. They're grinding stones or 
something else. But like there are um, there are ethnographic examples of them, like the, the Pueblo Bell, right, which is a hanging stone in, in the the Kiva Bell, I think it's called, in the Pueblos. That is, they can be either modified or, or not, or slightly modified. But you hit it with another stone, it makes a nice tone. Yeah. Could we consider this the earliest hard rock music? It was rock music, for sure. Wow. I mean, it, I uh, I lived in the northern New Mexico for a long time, and I I was kind of an amateur archaeologist. I, I read everything I could get on southwestern archaeology, and I spent all, all kinds of time in those ruins, especially Bandelier, which was close to where I lived in Taos. And, um, you know, in Bandelier, there are these mesas that are made of this volcanic tuf that's very easy to dig caves into, right? So there's cliff dwellings. Used to have stone fronts, but now you're just left with the, the caves dug into the tooth. And they, they form really nice, beautiful little chambers. And I just discovered hanging out there that if you sing a pitch, if you start at the bottom and oh, you will find the frequency of that cave and the whole thing reverberates like almost enough to make dust fall, you know, from the ceiling. Wow. And I, and I wondered like people are living there for, I don't know, a couple hundred years, maybe they must've discovered that property, <laughs> you know, if they didn't yeah, know about yeah. it already. Yeah. I think, I mean, you can see it in just like modern examples when people get into a, a big Canyon, you know, start yeah. yelling or things like that. Like we, we experiment with sound and we're cognizant of it and we enjoy yelling th- usually obscenities or something like that (laughs) and stuff like that. I mean, it's so striking when you're in there and you're singing, like if you're singing in there, you just have to hit the right pitch to activate that space. And it's, it's, it's amazing when it, when it happens. So I have a question for you that I've always kind of had as like a chicken or the egg scenario in my head, but obviously I like music. Do you think people began singing first or did like the invention of stone tools like lead people to percussion and like rhythm first? That's a great question. I don't think it can be answered. I mean, my just sure off the cuff answer would be that singing probably came yeah. first because I think singing and speech are just intimately related. Mm-hmm. The reason we have music is because we have speech. I mean, they, they use the same kind of skills. Yeah. And I guess animals also sing in a sense. So we probably were mimicking that. And I just, I can't, I can't get this out of my head. Like, uh, you know how at the beginning of, uh, one of the, it's like, I think it's Tarzan where Phil, Phil Collins does all the music for it and they start like banging on stuff and it starts like beginning a song and coming into a song. That's all I can picture is like, uh, like a napping session where someone, Someone's yes. A bunch of Neanderthals wander onto a British tea set and begin to play the spoons. And with that, we'll be right back with episode 59 of Life Ruins Podcast. Uh, We'll be right back with Dr. Mason Brown. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show. This is episode 59. Just kidding. This is the clowns from A Life in Ruins. And we are are here with the very cool and very awesome Dr. Mason Brown. And in the break, we had talked about string instruments and bow technology and how they are kind of a, it's seemingly natural that 
you would use, you would get bow instruments when you have bow technology. And uh, Mason pointed out to us that on uh, Sesame Street in the 70s, Buffy St. Marie shows up and plays what looks like a, a small bow, a small arrow or bow and arrow kind of thing and, and, and makes this fantastic noise. And oh my gosh, it's it's, it's called a cool. mouth bow. It's called a yeah. mouth and bow. And it is catchy as hell. She's playing <laughs> Cripple Creek on it. And I'll be damned if it ain't an instrument. If you want an idea for the size, it looks like a like a bow drill to make a fire. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's neat. Do you think it's it's possible that in the in, in prehistory we had had stuff like this? I think it's highly likely, and I I imagine there's probably evidence for it out there somewhere that I don't know about. But I don't see how you could have archery bows and not have musical bows. Because one is, I mean, an archery bow is can be a musical bow. You can play it. Yeah. Just as a single string, you can change the length of the string to get different pitches out of it. A little one like Buffy St. Marie is using there is one end of it is inserted in, in the mouth, and then the mouth becomes a resonating chamber for that string. And as she twang, twang, twangs on the string, she changes the shape of her mouth to change the pitch and the timbre of the sound. That's cool. So kind of like a squawk box that Alice yeah. in Chains would use, but not. But <laughs> I guess it's the same kind of thing. I guess Peter Frampton uses it too. That's um, the same. It's the same principle. Uh, huh. Shaping the sound with the cavity of the mouth. Like an elk call. Because I'm a redneck, and that's that's the only thing I can relate to. I, as I've told like Connor and David, this one of my great regrets in life is that I am like musically illiterate. Music is just not my thing; never has been. I'm really bad at it. I got a D average in my guitar class. They put me in the bass <laughs> section, so I only played like one note, usually on the E string, the entire recital. Sorry to hear that, man. It's, well, it's, it's okay. not for everybody. <laughs> you knew you you knew you're a bad guitar player if you got put in bass. Me and the other three football idiots. You know an infinite amount about music. How many songs do you know just in your head? Baby Shark comes to mind. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you you we it, this is socially constructed, right? Whether someone's a musician or not. In our society, yeah, you have to be a specialist. But in many societies, um, there is no such distinction. Or maybe some people are better at it and do it more, but everyone participates in music yeah. in many societies. I, I guess like growing up around a lot of like Jewish people, like at, at temple and stuff, you'd like sing it, at, to pray and stuff like that. I never knew what the words were, but like I always was weirded out that everybody knew the words and could sing it because it's kind of just words you're singing. Yeah. And I, I imagine like a lot of tribal societies are like that as well. You're just singing words. And even sense. if you're not performing the music, you understand it. And that's, yeah. that's pretty universal. Like uh, that's a human ability. But. And I, I think it's really interesting, at least in Western culture, that we kind of judge folks based on their understanding of music or, or understanding of scales, octaves, notes, and things like that. But I think it's, it's super interesting to see folks that are, don't really maybe not understand the, the nuts and bolts of that stuff, but still be able to play music and express themselves in these, these super beautiful ways. And I think it's, 
it's kind of a shame that people, you know, that we kind of have the stigma that if you don't know octaves and are classically trained, then that you're lesser of a musician. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not true. There are various music traditions around the world that have developed elaborate theories. The theory always comes after the practice, right? Yeah. But in most uh, traditional cultures, or uh, I don't know what the best word for them is. Yeah, most people around the world who play music really don't have a well-articulated theory. Like the... the Tibetan people I worked in with, with in Nepal, I, some of them are professional music teachers, so they do have music theory, quite a bit of music theory. But then, like, people in the village who just, like, I knew one guy who made his own drum yen. He just wanted one, so he made one. And then he learned to play the tunes that he knew on it without knowing any music theory. And that's more the typical way that vernacular music, so-called... So passed on orally and orally are done. You just, you just learn it. Hmm. You know, maybe you can't describe it in theoretical terms. I guess speaking of learning music, I think we were going to talk about in this segment, your, your violin or learning the, you know, what you you're currently been working on. The fiddle. The yeah. Fiddle. So I'm, I've been playing Irish traditional music for quite, quite a long time, but I played it on lots of other instruments, some um, guitar, mandolin, even viola da gamba. But finally, um, about two and a half years ago, I started taking up the, the violin. And it's much harder than the other bowed instruments that I've played, which are played like a cello. Right. A gamba. This is a much more ergonomic way to help use a bow than this. In other words, when I hold the, the bow on the, on the violin, it's... It's very hard to tell whether it's perpendicular to the string or I don't know. It's it's a totally different thing. So it's it's been quite a a hard journey. But I've also and I've been thinking about this for a long time. So um, because I I grew up in Southwest Michigan, which is a very um, I guess Appalachian part of Michigan. Like a lot of people came up there in the in a great migration to work in factories. So. People around where, and where I grew up in the rural area were mostly from Tennessee and Kentucky, or their grandparents were. You know, I, we grew up with this idea that, um, like, bluegrass fiddle playing, well, that's just came over from our Scotch-Irish ancestors, you know. Fiddle music came from Ireland, and it came over here, and yeah, maybe it mixed with some other things here, but it's still basically the same. And it, it turns out, no, it, these traditions all kind of arose at the same time which is basically in the late 18th and the 19th century when mass-produced violins became widely available and ordinary people could have them. Huh. Before that, your, your typical farmer didn't just have a fiddle hanging on the wall. You know, People who played fiddles, various types of fiddles, were tended to be more professional, itinerant, maybe low-caste, Gypsy people, for instance, you know, Romani people. Mm -hmm. But when in the 19th century, there's this whole revolution of instrument manufacturing and musical instruments become available to the masses. And especially like the middle in the middle class, right? You had to have a piano in your home. 
your daughters had to learn piano. Like if you wanted to get your daughter married, piano was one of the things she had to learn. You had to buy sheet music for it. And, um, you know, the same thing happened with, with violins uh, and all the other instruments. So, you know, even though, like, if you think of Irish music, there are melodies that go back hundreds of years before that. But the main melodies that we think of as the backbone of that tradition now, as this ethnomusicologist Alan Jabour put it, those are from the early 19th century, maybe the late 18th. And so that happened the same time in North America as it was happening in Scotland and Ireland. You know, and later these fiddle traditions arose all over the world, in in Greece, in Mexico, in uh, India, as mass-produced violins spread everywhere, you know. So, you know, the the point with that is that, um, you know, when I was a kid and I heard bluegrass or old-time, more accurately would be old-time. Old-time music is the fiddle music before bluegrass, right? Bluegrass is partly based on old-time. It has a lot of tunes in common with Scottish and Irish traditions, but it has a lot that that are very different and that are obviously American compositions, and also don't even have the same style or rhythm. Very different style and rhythm. That's really very African. So the influence of African-American fiddle players on American fiddle music is now it's being recovered and studied and, and acknowledged, but for a long time, it was actually hidden and misrepresented. This music of a fiddle and banjo playing together playing these what we now call Appalachian or old-time tunes, was appropriated by whites from African-Americans in the middle of the 19th century through the minstrel shows, Hmm. right? So minstrel shows were working-class white musicians who were putting on an appropriation, kind of almost a parody of African-American music in blackface, not <laughs> so that spread this banjo and fiddle music all over the country. It was the most popular music in in America for whites and blacks. In fact, there were black minstrels cashing in on this phenomenon. You know, even they wore blackface. Hmm. So it was it's it's just kind of a very fraught topic. But it, it it's the result was. For a hundred years before that, no white person would have been caught dead playing banjo and fiddle together. That was strictly an African-American thing. And then a hundred years after that, everyone thinks it's totally white. And and African-Americans have moved on to create blues and jazz, which in turn were appropriated. And it's like like one thing after another, African-Americans introduced to... American music, and then or another interesting thing about the the origins of American fiddle music, especially in the Upper South. I'm not talking about necessarily New England or other places, although it probably applies to some extent there too. Is a Native American influence, um, which the ethnomusicologist uh, and folklorist Alan Jabour theorized was he, well. He thought there was evidence for that influence in the fact that uh, most, uh, when you think of a fiddle tune from Scotland or Ireland, 
it usually has two parts, which um, are often called strains. There will be an A part and a B part, and usually the A part is lower and the B part is higher. But in a high number of American fiddle tunes, it's the opposite. It has a descending contour. And if you guys have ever been to a powwow, you would have heard descending contours all day long. Because Native American music favors descending contours mm-hmm. in a lot of different styles and a lot of different places. In regards to like the chanting singing or yeah, so like the, to the flute? If you think of a powwow song, that's that's a tune, right? It's sung with vocables, other words, words that are not necessarily lexical words, but just um, mm-hmm. sounds. They can have other meanings and other associations. But it's basically like when, when you, if you sing an Irish dance tune, you'll sing it with uh, lilting. That's vocables, right? Mm-hmm. And um, those powwow songs, you're singing a melody with vocables, and it ends up lower than it started in pitch. Huh. So that's not unheard of in European music, but it's not very common. And why... Would it be so common in old-time music uh, just accidentally? Or maybe was it because there's a lot of interchange and intermarriage between whites, blacks, and Native Americans in the Upper South? So this this history of fiddle music and, and stuff is, 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 is complicated, and it it's, it's wild that it became this kind of sign or like this... Uh, I don't know how to describe it. You know, it's it's a symbol of working class white folks yeah. today, but it's but it has all these in, insane influences from different directions and things like that. And it is being reclaimed too by younger black musicians like Rhiannon Giddens from the Carolina. Oh Falcon yeah, Gaps. And she's, she's fantastic. And a lot of younger black scholars who are hmm. writing about banjo and fiddle music and minstrelsy and stuff. So there's a lot of exciting stuff happening. If the stuff was being appropriated from, you know, African-Americans from like, are you talking about like from the South or from the Appalachian areas? And like, where would they have gotten, like why were Irish instruments there to begin with, I guess, or were they African instruments as well? The fiddle, the violin, right? The fiddle, fiddle is a, a colloquial word for a violin or any instrument played with a bow. It's actually a cognate fiddle, Veal, same word, right? Oh. The, the modern Italian violin that started to be manufactured in the, in the late 18th century, that was the instrument that really quickly became, replaced other older types of fiddles as the instrument for like European dancing, right? Oh. And so when, in the plantation south, whenever the, the slave holders had a party, they would need musicians to play fiddle for it, right? And those musicians were enslaved people, almost Uh, always. Did not know that. Sometimes they could have been indentured servants that were white too, but definitely low-class people, like upper-class people didn't really do that. But um, So I I think, you know, the theory goes, they would have been required to play hornpipes and so forth. And, you know, enslaved people came from areas in Africa where there was well-established fiddle traditions. 
with various hmm. different types of fiddles. And so they would have understood that instrument immediately and they would have Africanized, they would have played the tunes that the dances that were required and, and played them in their own style, which is um, heavily imbued with polyrhythm. I did not know that. Like I knew rock and roll was definitely influenced by like Southern African-Americans, but I did not know like bluegrass was either. I mean, bluegrass is doubly influenced by it because right. It's, it's created by Bill Monroe and um, he's an old time musician, right? So he's already playing a tradition that, has come to whites largely through minstrelsy, but also through just in Appalachia, just living in proximity with African-Americans too. So there's a lot of actual just interchange. But then um, Bill Monroe took that old time string band and he tried to make it like a swing band, like a jazz band. Everyone, every instrument would have its place. Every instrument would have its solo and it would solo on the chord changes which that is not done in old time music at all. You just play the tune. You don't solo on chord changes, right? So that's, Bill Monroe took that straight from big band jazz, that improvisational part. So, right, he's dipped back into African-American music again to create bluegrass. Wow. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's, it's cool how this, how these all things like intertwine and, and, and mix and, and it's got to be fun um, chasing and finding that uh, through your research. And yeah, we wanted we wanted to thank you so much, Dr. Brown, uh, for for coming on to this podcast and and talking with us. We really just had such a fantastic time talking about. I, I learned a ton. Yeah. Like yeah, thanks so thanks so much for uh, for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed um, meeting you all, and uh, like I said, I love your pod. Excellent. Well, Thanks, man. We appreciate it. Yeah. We'll be happy to have you on again because I have a million questions for you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's a part two in the future. And All so right. before we end the uh, the show, Mason, what are a couple of sources that you would recommend for anyone interested in ethnomusicology or the topics that we talked about today? Well, I mean, you can just, I mean, definitely the, uh, the Journal of the Society for Ethnomusicology, which is just called Ethnomusicology. Um, there's, there's a European association, uh, international council for traditional music that puts out a journal called the yearbook for traditional music. SEM, the society for ethnomusicology has a podcast called ethnomusicology today, where they, you know, interview, you know, individual scholars about their research. They don't, um, necessarily do that that often is the only thing I don't like about it, but there's definitely some back episodes there. Awesome. Gotcha. And there's also a journal of the International Council for Traditional Music that you told us about, the European Ethnomusicology Professional Organization, and a film by ethnomusicologist Anna Stir and filmmaker Bakta Syangten. Yes. um, Singing a Great Dream. That's a documentary film that uh, Anna Stir and uh, Bakta Syangten just recently came out with called Singing a Great Dream, The Revolutionary Songs in the Life of Kushidam Pakrin. And uh, Kushidam Pakrin was a Nepali songwriter and was a Maoist in the Maoist civil war that Nepal had between 1996 and 2006. And so he wrote songs and operas in support of the Maoist revolution. And so it's, it's a documentary using original footage of him and... and just telling his story. Okay. All right. Excellent. 
Yeah, and all these for our listeners and viewers, if you're watching the, the video version of this podcast on archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or on ArcPodnet's uh, YouTube channel, all of the links to these sources will be in the description. Um, so be able to click on those and check those out. Where can our listeners find you on uh, social media or how can they contact you in any way? I, in social media, I'm mainly just on Facebook. So it's just uh, okay. my name, Mason Brown. Um, I also have a YouTube channel. I have an older YouTube channel that I had to abandon because I lost the ability to log into it. Oh, no. <laughs> and Google won't give it back. So, um, yeah, I made a new one now just recently. <laughs> Is it Mason Brown? Yeah. Excellent. And links for that also in the description. Yeah. And uh, because we're nerds and because we like repeating things and having repeating segments in this in the show – we got to ask you. So, Dr. Brown, if given the chance again, would you still choose to find the right frequencies <laughs> in ruins? Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Awesome. All right. Well, we just interviewed Dr. Mason Brown. You can find him on Facebook and YouTube by Googling his name. Links in the description below. Guys, please be sure to rate and review the podcast. It's how we grow and it's how uh, Apple recommends us and, you know, that whole thing. Just just do it. Thanks. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. All right. We got to do something music related. So on that note. Thank you. Oh my Connor. gosh. Thank <laughs> you. Just kiss. Wow. Just... <laughs> Give me a second. Uh, you, do you guys want to hear the joke about a staccato? Sure. Sure. Never mind. It's too short. <laughs> oh, nice. Thank you all. My, my flamenco teacher was telling me about guitar or baroque one time. And I, I forget what I asked, but he's like, "You want to see a broke guitar?" And he just picked up his guitar and like flipped it. How many times <laughs> you told that joke? <laughs> 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 all right. All right. <laughs> This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.